Okay, this series will be looking at culture's assault on Christianity. Last week we said where we came from, how we got here. Tonight we're going to look at the enemy's tactics. And then later in the series we're going to look at a couple more things. The enemy's content or the culture's content. And then we're going to look at the church's response. So those of us who know Jesus Christ, we do need to respond, and we cannot respond with silence. Silence is not really an option anymore. So how does the Bible tell us to apply the truth in love? We'll actually look at the passage where that phrase comes from, truth and love. We need to be able to do that. We need to handle the truth, but we need to handle it in love. The truth includes love. It's kind of a package deal. Uh, You really, I don't think you can have one without the other, right? So we're not stiff arming, we're not alienating, we're not stiff arming, we're not uh, pushing away, we're telling the truth, but we're doing it because we love them. The primary book that will be used for this series, like I said last week, is the Bible, okay? Why is that? Well, because the Bible speaks to the issues that make great cultures, the Bible corrects the issues that ruin cultures or start them off badly to begin with. We don't have to go outside the Bible to find answers for the human sin that does damage to the culture, okay? We don't have to. We're going to look at a couple books that supplement that, but we certainly don't have to. We're not just wanting, remember, to win an argument. We're wanting to win a soul. So everything you learn in here, I don't want you to just get head knowledge and then go, okay, man, I've got ammo for my next argument. Boom, 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 I won. It's I need to be able to provide some sort of an argument, sure, I need to be able to provide a defense, but it needs to be always with the motive of winning a soul, not just winning an argument. So we go to the Bible for that reason. We don't go to a social movement outside the Bible. Our primary book for this series is the Bible, but there are also a few other books that will help us navigate this topic, okay? One is, I'm just going to bring them up real quickly again, one is We Will Not Be Silenced by Erwin Lutzer. The subtitle of that book kind of provided the theme for this series, We Will Not Be Silenced, Erwin Lutzer. The next one is Fault Lines, Vody Bauckham, and if you want to come up here afterward and look at any of these, you can. Fault Lines, Vody Bauckham, uh, great, great preacher. I think he... He left America again. He's, um, he's from America, but he moved back to Africa. He's teaching one of the seminaries over there so that um, Africa is not just getting its theology from, from uh, TBN, so, which is a prevalent issue over there. They don't have really good training. The third one is the letter to the American church, Eric Metaxas. And then, I didn't put this in my notes last time, but uh, somebody came up afterward last time and, and mentioned this, and I said, oh, yeah, I have that. I forgot to mention it. So this is called the Founder's Bible. The video clip we watched last week, it cut out when it had about 10 seconds left on it. Most of it played. That was from David Barton with Wall Builders. They're based in Alito, Texas, and they put, with help from some other people, they put together the Founder's Bible. And so it walks you through the scripture, and as it's doing that, it's giving you notes as far as, okay, where did this, the majority of our civil laws, some of the main principles of them come from the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the parables Jesus gives in the New Testament. And and most people don't know this. They just don't know. Our free market system, Um, our idea of not having a minimum wage. I mean, a lot of these ideas come from Scripture. Not minimum wage, not minimum wage, uh, if that makes sense. So a lot of these ideas that we first set up come from Scripture, okay? So that's uh, some extra resources that we're going to use. But again, the disclaimer is anytime I recommend any book other than the Bible, please, please understand it is imperfect. It will have things in there that are imperfect. And, and I can guarantee you all three of those probably have a couple things where I'll say, maybe I don't agree with that. Maybe there's a better way to say that. But they're great resources. If our current culture in this nation, compared to how it once viewed the Bible and its principles, has become blinded over time, then how did our culture become so blind? You might be asking yourself this question occasionally. What tactics has our enemy used to influence our culture? If he doesn't use the right tactics, this is not going to work, right? When, when Satan comes in the serpent, represented by the serpent, or in the form of a serpent, in the Garden of Eden and deceives Eve and then gets Adam to sin as well, he doesn't accomplish that mission without a subtle tactic, a very clever tactic. And so he's doing the same thing today. He hasn't changed his tactics. He, he hasn't stopped trying them. Uh, he hasn't stopped rebelling against God. Um, and so an important note for this series that I just want to bring up. I know tonight's series title is The Culture's Tactics, but I just want you to understand something. 
we don't fight the culture. We fight the enemy's influence that we find in the culture. Y'all see the difference? I'm, I'm not mad at people. I don't hate people. I want to reach people. I'm mad that they're letting the enemy influence them and ruin their lives and then damage the culture that we live in. That's what I'm upset about. We're not fighting the culture. We're fighting the enemy's influence we find inside the culture. We're not mad at people who don't have the truth. We love these people by sharing the truth with them. Our enemy is not the people in our culture. It's the kingdom of darkness and its influence over those people. So I think it's important that we nail that distinction down. That's an important one. So please don't confuse those two things, okay? So in the section of your notes that says the enemy's tactics in our culture... I'll list a few of these as we go through, but before I list the first one, uh, I just want to say the enemy, and when I say the enemy tonight, I mean Satan's kingdom. The Bible really is a tale of two, it's a tale of two cities in a sense, Jerusalem and Babylon, and, and their spiritual influence throughout all of human history, but it's also a tale of two kingdoms. You have God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. So Satan's kingdom, when I say the enemy, that's what I mean, is very active in our culture. And this does require a battle that we're called to fight, but to fight the right way and with the right tools. And so I think that's key to understand. Sometimes I think we just get out there and and we don't have any training and we don't know what our tools are and we just start swinging. And okay, slow down a little bit, (laughs) right? And so we, we need to understand what our tools are. Let me read this to you just real quickly. So a lot of people say, well, I think you're overstating your case when you say that the negative influences in this culture come from Satan, come from the kingdom of darkness, the, the enemy. You know, some people might say, I, I, think you're, I think you're overdoing it a little bit, right? You're, you know, you're making up this fantasy so you can just plug it on the bad guy. You're making up your own bad guy. Well, listen to this. This is one of the most outlandish statements you'll hear me make tonight but it's 100% true. Most people don't know. Most Christians don't know it. Public schools were started in this country, and I'll, I'll read you when that happened, based on the idea of this belief, the belief I'm saying right here, the belief that Satan is actively trying to deceive us. First off, that assumes that he's real, <laughs> that he's actively trying to deceive us, and so we need the Bible to steer clear and to steer us in the right direction to steer clear of his influence, to not be deceived by him. The first public law school, the first public school law, excuse me, is passed in 1642 in Massachusetts. The second comes five years later in 1647. They're both printed in the Code of 1650. You can look that up. The Code of 1650 came out of Massachusetts and Connecticut, which, by the way, included anti-slavery law. Uh, There's a difference in Jamestown and, and Plymouth. We'll talk about that. The old, what was, what do we refer to this act as? It's called the Old Deluder Satan Act was the name of this public school law. They would mention, uh, why would they mention Satan in a law that creates public education? The first law in this nation, even before we were a nation, to do so. That's kind of odd if you think about it. The Code of 1650 said this, quote, it being the one chief project of that old deluder, that means deceiver, that old deluder, Satan, to keep men from the knowledge of scripture. They started public education here to make sure that their children were taught to read and understand the principles of religion and the capital laws of this country based on their understanding that Satan is trying to deceive them. That's what this is based on. Public schools were first formed to teach the Bible in a defense against the deception of Satan. Do you think those guys were onto something? Yes, I mean, exactly, absolutely. But how many people know that? Most people don't know that. And they say, well, you know, we can't, you know, in public school, maybe you're not supposed to pray. You know what happened in the 60s when they tried to take prayer out and all these things. And I'm not saying we should cram religion down someone's throat and say, you're going to kneel down and pray today. You know, if they don't want to pray, they don't have to pray, right? But, but it started as that. It started as we need to get this into our kids' minds because Satan's a deceiver and they need to have the tools and be equipped to know and recognize his deception so that they can avoid it and not 
ruin their lives. <laughs> Sounds like a good strategy, right? So this is how it started. So even these early Puritans and pilgrims agreed with this mindset of, and you saw it way back then, that Satan is trying to, even before we were formed as a nation, this was in the 1600s, that Satan is trying, going to do his best. They knew it before it even happened. Because that's what he does. He's going to try his best to ruin the culture and to influence it. So the first passage in the, introduc- in the enemy's tactics in our culture section is 2 Corinthians 4. I'll walk you through about four passages. And then we'll jump in and talk about the different tactics that he uses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Um, we'll move pretty quickly tonight, kind of like we did last time. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. When he first talks about minds being blinded or being veiled, he's talking about specifically the Jews and they're not realizing Jesus is the Messiah. Once they realize that, the the veil is lifted. But then he goes on and he says this, he kind of zooms out to not just necessarily the Jews. In verse 3 and 4 he says... But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled or covered or, or, you know, hidden. It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Who's the God of this age? Well, Paul is either deluded to think, okay, there's this guy named Satan out there when he doesn't really exist. You know, you've heard the, the old joke, what's Satan's biggest lie? I don't exist. <laughs> It was his second biggest lie, I'm everywhere. But yeah, so that's it. There are those in this culture whose thinking, their minds, is being actively blinded by Satan and his kingdom. This is essentially what this says. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, you slide over to the right. Paul also says this in the same letter to the church at Corinth, 11.3. He says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness... So your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that's in Christ. What did he just say? Well, just like Satan deceived Eve in the garden, he can deceive you right where you sit. 1 Peter 5, so if you hang a right several letters, go to 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. Just two more passages. Uh, This one is 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. First Peter 5, 8, and 9. I like a high percentage of the people, I don't mind if you use a phone to read the Bible, but I like a high percentage of the people that have an actual physical Bible because then I can tell when most of the pages stop turning, I don't know, okay, I need to wait till then. Be sober, be vigilant, be, you know, alert. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's actively seeking to do this. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in all the world. Satan does not accidentally destroy people's lives and entire cultures and nations. He's intentionally looking to devour us. This is, he didn't accidentally stumble into it. He's trying to do this every day. All day. It's just what he does. Now, look at Ephesians. This is our last passage uh, until the end. Ephesians 4, 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, and then we'll skip down to verse 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 7. So if Satan's our adversary and he's trying to influence the culture that we live in, what is God's chosen group? or establishment, or institution, whatever word you want to use there, to deal with this. There's really only one. Parachurch groups are fine. I'm not not mad at parachurch groups, but there's really only one. Ephesians 4, verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, he's talking to the church, the local gathering of those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ gives gifts to his children. Verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equip. Why? 
for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and the building up or edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, that means complete, in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we should no longer be children who are tossed back and forth and carried about by every wind of teaching, but by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking, and, and it's interesting, that word deceitful is where we get our word planet. It is, it's a slow, subtle shift. It's usually not quick, rapid. It's slow, subtle, we're going to change this and move over here. And it's a slow, it's, it's where they, they got the word planet because they noticed that they moved. They didn't stay in the same spot in the sky. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, he's talking about the church when he says body, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So what did he just say? He said the local church is God's chosen movement to train us up to be strong in the truth and this is part of our job is to, is to help train you so that you can do the work of the ministry. We can't do all the work ourselves, of course. And then to speak that truth in love, starting with the church and then going to those outside who don't know Christ. So we know from scripture, we've just looked at four passages, that Satan is very active in any culture wanting to destroy the culture, right? So what are the strategies or tactics that he uses that we can observe in our culture? Number one, he exploits grievances, wounds, wrongs, things done that were wrong. He exploits grievances in the culture to create oppressed groups. One of the things he does is he exploits grievances in the culture to create oppressed groups. Let's walk through this. I'll, I'll give you illustration after illustration of, of these, okay? Exploit grievances in the culture to create oppressed groups. Does oppression exist in any culture? Yeah, because human sin exists in any culture, because we're human. You know the old joke, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because <laughs> that's, that it's, that, yeah, you get, I don't have to explain that, okay. One of the enemy's tactics is to take advantage of wrongs that have been done or are being done in the culture, and again, he has a myriad of options to choose. I mean, that goes on in every culture. We're sinners. And then provide his own answer as the solution in direct competition with God's answer. And often he'll even be tricky of how he identifies the grievance. He'll either twist it or reframe it. But always his answer is in direct competition with God's answer. God already provided an answer for injustices done in the culture in here. All of them. They're in here. Trust me. I mean, they're in here. Satan says, okay, that is a problem. And he may even switch why it's a problem, but then he won't go here. He'll go in the opposite direction. His answer is in direct competition to God's answer. Now, sometimes those grievances or wrongs are legitimate. Sometimes they're not. For example, if you look at the 1619 Project, what does the 1619 Project say that the grievance or wrong was done? Well, one of the things that they're going to point out is slavery from the legacy of Jamestown. If you've ever studied our nation's founding, you probably studied a little bit about Jamestown. Slavery from Jamestown. But slavery was not legal. They need to go back and do their history. Slavery was not legal in Jamestown in 1619 and was not made legal there until years later when a black man sued for the ability to own another black man in 1653. And slavery from Europeans began way before this. So if you want to talk about slavery on this content, you'd have to back up to 1526 to the Spanish Carolina colony and then a few years later the Spanish Florida colonies after that. You'd have to back up there and you'd say, well, it was in the 1500s. But that wasn't even the first slavery in this area. When Columbus came here in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, Native Americans were already enslaving other Native Americans and taking land from each other and killing each other, and suppressing righteousness, and promoting injustice. Why? Because they're worse than we are? Nope. We're all sinners. That's, that's why. We all need a savior. We all equally are sinners. We all equally need a savior. Even today, there are still slaves in our world today. There are nations around the world that have not, still to this day, have not made slavery illegal. And in many of those, it still goes on. 
The problem is not Jamestown. The problem is human sin. And no earthly movement outside of the local church has the answer for human sin because that answer is found in the Bible. No earthly movement other than God's chosen earthly institution, the local church. It's not perfect. We're not perfect either, but we have the truth. We're the only ones in the culture who do have the truth, by the way. So that's important. It's a tale of two cities, right? If you've heard that phrase, a tale of two cities, we see it in a popular book. We see it in the Bible. If you look at Jerusalem versus Babylon in the Bible throughout all of human history, it even brings that theme back up in Revelation, by the way. We see it in America's earliest days. So I'm going to take a tale of two cities. I'm not the first one to do this. I'm going to take this tale of two cities idea and apply it to Plymouth versus Jamestown. Two very different ideals, two very different legacies from those two threads. And we see those two threads. I'm a little bit overgeneralizing here, but not much. You see those two threads, Plymouth and Jamestown, play out through most of American history. The Jamestown thread leading to all kinds of a mess. Then they starved to death because they had a socialistic model. Nobody wanted to work. That's <laughs> part of the reason they starved. They wouldn't get off their rear end and work. Um, slavery. I mean, all these, all these things come through the Jamestown thread. They do not, any of them, although we'll, we might talk about the Salem witch trials later. They do not come through, except for that, uh, they do not come through the Plymouth thread. These are two very different things, a tale of two cities. Jamestown was founded in 1607 at Cape Henry, not 1619. So again, they would, if they want to word correctly, it'd be 1607 project. And although the Charter of Virginia had Christian language in it, they said, hey, we're, you know, we're doing this for we're Christianity, we're God. They did not follow biblical standards of living. Jamestown was largely built on the idea that everything belonged to the king. The structure of labor and goods was socialistic. And this led to no, no one owns anything. It all belongs to the king, right? It's not your property. There's no private property. So this led to starvation and death. Where's my incentive to work, right? If I can't make a profit, if I can't, you know, you guys do it. I don't want to do it today. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sick, you know. It's the guy, the employee that you have that always seems to call in sick on, it happens to be Monday. It's kind of like that, right? So um, led to starvation, led to death, led to digging up corpses to eat them. They did that. Eating each other. Sound like a utopia yet? Socialistic paradise? And yes, slavery is one of the eventual legacies of Jamestown. Their behavior does not match their Christian profession. It almost kind of reminds me of the um, fifth letter in the seven letters to the seven churches, Revelation chapter two and three. The first letter in chapter three, which is the fifth letter to Sardis, it kind of reminds me of that. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. You may call yourself Christian, but there are a lot of people in the church that actually don't, probably don't even know me at all. This was kind of like Jamestown. Not saying there weren't any Christians there, but now let's look at the other city. Uh, We could call it the 1620 Project. It's the year later. Plymouth, led by the Pilgrims, in contrast to Jamestown, gave us our first free enterprise system of free trade. First. Um, This was a new idea. They pioneered part of this. Gave us uh, private property rights. Gave us basic morality wired into the laws. You know, the libertarians say we should not um, legislate morality. You may have heard the libertarians repeat that phrase. And although I agree with some of what they say, that's absolute lunacy. You cannot legislate morality. Oh, really? So it's okay if I go kill this person in the back for no reason? You better legislate some basic morality. (laughs) We have some issues. If none of the Ten Commandments, how we treat each other, you know, is wired into our legal structure. Um, It's where all that stuff comes from. Uh, Basic morality wired into the laws, but also a clear separation of civil authority and spiritual authority. They separated those. They elected their governor every year. They elected their pastors. This would be funny if y'all did this with us. The pressure's on, right? They elected their pastor every year. And so, now we might not do that, but the point is they separated the two. We have civil, we have religious, they're separate. They never were against the religious influencing the civil. In fact, they said, it better or it's going to be terrible. They just said, okay, the civil is not going to run the church. These are two separate institutions. Thomas Jefferson, and off, running off John Locke, picks up this idea later and runs with it. 
So the 1619 Project highlights a legitimate grievance or wrong, being slavery in this case. But they misunderstand its origin, they have the historical details all wrong, and they provide their own answer that is in direct competition to God's answer. Now there's other legitimate grievances. Uh, One of their answers being, let's deconstruct everything uh, and rebuild this perfect utopia. There's no such thing, right? As we saw in Jamestown, (laughs) the starvation and a lot of other bad stuff. There's other legitimate grievances in this country, in this culture. Women's suffrage. If you don't know what that phrase means, the women's rights to vote. Women's suffrage. I think legitimate issue. Same rights for black Americans as white Americans. Legitimate issue. The KKK and its Democratic Party voter suppression of freed slaves. As soon as they were freed, they said, okay, they're freed, but we're going to switch the voting location last second and not tell them. We're going to put armed guys there to encourage the blacks not to come and vote. I mean, just terrible stuff. So you had voter suppression. Anytime the church has punished false doctrine with force, uh, with the Plymouth Rock thread, Probably their biggest embarrassment would be the Salem Witch Trials. Usually in American history, today we study the Salem Witch Trials. I think something like 27 people died over a period of 18 months or so. And while that's horrible, if you compare, and it is, there's two things that they don't talk about in most history books. One, if you look at Europe, over a period of roughly 100 years, 500,000 people died under witch trials in the similar period of time. Half a million, 27 Half a million, 27. Almost 100 years, uh, 18 months. Is this bad? Yes. But if you look at the comparison, there's no even comparison. Who gets them to stop when they're doing all the Salem witch trials and they're not giving people due process? In fact, one guy wouldn't answer their questions. This is not due process. Scripture teaches due process. They get it from a couple passages, one in John and one in Proverbs. One side sounds good till you heard the other. And then John talks about the right to bring forth witnesses. They don't do due process. One of the guys they killed in the Salem witch trials, they put a board and they stacked rocks on it because he wouldn't answer their question. And they just kept doing it and he never answered. And so they did it until he was crushed to death. I mean, that's not due process. So when did it stop? Why only 27? People killed in the Salem witch trials. Two reverends, actually I think three, two reverends, pastors, came up to the governor and said, this is against what the Bible, the Bible has due process principles. You're not doing that. Showed it to the governor and the governor said, you're right, I've been wrong. Um, Goes to the judge, gets him to stop. Later publicly apologizes for it in the church. (laughs) These are two very different things, right? So they did make that mistake, but they, they fixed it. What did they fix it with? We can't just kill people because we think they're a witch. There's due process. Um, Whether or not it should be illegal to be a witch is a separate issue. There's due process. Whatever the laws are, there's due process. Okay? Um, I don't even remember where I stopped. So when people do good, even at the risk... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a page. That might help. Okay, legitimate grievances we're talking about. The answer that our enemy provides to those grievances are always the wrong answer and in direct competition with God's answer or solution, okay? There's a quote from, so we talked about the 1619 Project. Let's pick for just a second. I'm only picking on this one because I talked about it last time, so I'm gonna bring it up again in this one so that you can see more info on this one group. So this is BLM, Black Lives Matter, There's a quote from Black Lives Matter from Erwin Lutzer, his book, We Will Not Be Silenced, page 26. Here's their answer or solution. They say, we disrupt, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. What does that mean? Biblical structure of family, one man, one woman, their children, they're raising it in the family. Requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. Not just to do that once they've already fallen apart, but also to endorse this. We foster, they also say, we foster a queer affirming network. So why would you not leave the Bible and go to a social, because a social movement? Because 
if they don't follow the Bible, inevitably some other stuff is going to work itself into that movement that you say, wait a second, that's a bridge too far. Right? I'm not in sign up for that. You know, if, if you want to protest and destroy private property and throw death threats and cuss people out, I didn't, that's a bridge too far. I didn't sign up for that, right? And so, again, got to stick with this. Uh, the BLM co-founder said, we are trained Marxists. So they're bringing Marxism in. They know they're, they say they're doing it. They don't hide this. Let's go back to the 1619 Project. What's their answer or solution to sometimes legitimate grievances? One of their answers is to defund the police. Well, God says in Proverbs 29.2, quote, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rules, the people groan. So God actually cares about law and order and police are required in some sense, whatever term you throw, you use of them to enforce the laws. Uh, the answer or solution that th- they come up with as well is to, uh, another one is to restructure the family unit. Well, God says in Genesis that he made them male and female, that a husband should attach to his wife, the two will become one flesh, and he should not be separated by man. Another one of their answers is to basically hit the reset button on the entire legal structure of the government. But wait a second, if we do that, God has, you're, that's way worse off than we, we've seen the result of, of that in defunding the police in these cities that are turned into chaos and lawlessness. The, it's worse than what you had at the beginning. Um, the answer to the lawless, beha- this leads to anarchy, not justice or equity, and the result of doing that is worse than what we had before. Right? Instead of, um, if you go back to the police, the, the real solution would be instead of dealing with the police officers who are corrupt, that would be the real solution. The new solution offered is to remove the police force entirely or severely cripple it by removing its funding, like I said, uh, defunding. It leads to anarchy, does not lead to justice. It's worse than what you had before, like I said. The answer to the lawless behavior by those who are entrusted to enforce those very laws, in other words, the police, is not the removal of those good laws, but the enforcement of the law. There are already laws dealing with that issue of corruption. And we're consistent and courageous, even at the risk of our own lives. I'm going to talk about Serpico. He did it at risk of his own safety in New York City in the 70s. Even at the risk of our own lives to boldly enforce the law that's already there that deals with corruption. Serpico is a great illustration of that. He dealt with police corruption, bribery, and payoffs in New York City in the 1970s. Some of you may have heard that name, Frank Serpico, or seen the movie made about him. Um, His dad taught him when he was a kid this idea. He said, never run when you're right. His dad nailed that idea down in his mind, and, and it stuck. And then Serpico applied that idea to expose police corruption. But he wasn't for defunding the entire police force because he was also a New York City cop. I mean, he was a cop himself. He was for dealing with the corruption. And he did root uh, some of it out and expose some of it. So when people, when good people do good, even at the risk of their safety or life, Serpico was almost killed, death threats on him, all that stuff. They can limit corrupt behavior. Now, did I say stop all of it? No. Not going to do that till Christ returns and puts his kingdom here on earth. But limit. Limit. But to think that we can create our own world without any human corruption, that is a complete fantasy. The desire we have, now that's not a bad desire. The desire we have to live in a perfect world with no corruption is not a bad desire. God actually gave it to us. It's a good desire. But to believe that we can create this on our own is the very lie that got us in this mess to begin with. So what Satan does is, just what he did in the garden. He comes to us, highlights a desire that God gave us, sex, the desire for perfection, you know, whatever, but gives it his own solution as an alternative. All Satan is really after is more territory, more authority on this earth. A power grab, if you want to look at it that way. And if we believe his lies, and all action is based on belief, not knowledge. You can know something's true and not act on it. You act on what you believe. I can know that that's a chair, but I'm not going to sit in it and attempt to have it support my weight unless I actually believe that it's going to function as a chair and hold me up and not break. 
Action is not just based on knowledge. Action is based on belief. If we believe Satan's lies, that's exactly what we're giving to him. We're giving him the influence. We're giving him the territory. We're giving him more authority on this earth. So that's number one. Okay, exploit grievances in the culture to create oppressed groups. Number two, normalize bizarre or harmful behavior. Second tactic of the enemy, normalize bizarre or harmful behavior. So how does he do this? What does this look like? What are his tactics here? Well, first of all, under number two, first of all, he removes or changes natural law. He removes or changes what we call natural law. Principles, law or principles that you can observe in nature. You can just walk out in nature and observe this. An animal's right to defend itself when it's attacked. I mean, that's just a basic, duh. My dad has a cattle ranch east of Waco. Uh, We went there for Thanksgiving. You can go to my dad's ranch and you can stand out in the pasture where all the cattle are, okay? And um, if someone asks you the question, where do calves come from? Is it going to take you that long, even if you didn't know before, to answer that question out there in the field? No, it's not going to. Calves come from a male bull and a female cow. So if you applied this toxic idea of removing or changing natural law to ranching, if you applied this idea, if this is a good idea, let's apply it, okay? Let's apply it to ranching. You could put all the bulls in one pasture (laughs) and all the cows in another pasture, and when they all died, you'd be out of cattle and you'd go broke. It doesn't work. It would destroy that system. When you apply these ideas, they destroy systems. In nature, you can also observe natural rights that we should have by nature from our creator. The right to free speech, the right to free assembly and association, but that's often twisted. For example, the race riots of 2020. One of their mottos in the race riots of 2020 was, in this social justice movement, was no justice, no peace. This is one of their mottos that they would repeat. No justice, no peace. Which, by the way, that is not the legacy Martin Luther King left for them. Martin Luther King left a legacy of you boldly correct even at the risk of your own safety and life, and he paid for it with his life. Um, you boldly correct corruption, but you don't do it with violence. You do it with wisdom, tact, speech, character. So he didn't leave that legacy to them. They claim his name sometimes, but that's, that's garbage. With the race riots of 2020, no justice, no peace. In other words, until we get what we define to be justice, it's just for us to commit violence, theft, disorder, and claim that we have the right to do these things under the First Amendment of the Constitution. The First Amendment does not protect your right to throw death threats at people and hurl insults. The First Amendment, uh, if, if you're threatening, the First Amendment does not protect your right to destroy private property just because you're mad or you feel like it to get attention. It doesn't protect those things. Uh, second thing, under normalized, bizarre, or harmful behavior is preach freedom from sexually harmful behavior. So they preach freedom from um, freedom in the realm of, sorry, sexually harmful behavior. One of the enemy's tactics is to use more comfortable slogans to mask evil behavior. He'll mask the behavior with a slogan that doesn't, and you think about it and you say, yeah, that, that doesn't really sound that bad. For example, a slogan is marriage equality. You may have heard that slogan. Marriage equality is a slogan that's used to support relationships that by definition are not a marriage. But you take this idea, you slap this new slogan on it, and all of a sudden you have this, you know, benign, easy, simple thing. Another slogan they use is uh, sexual freedom. Sexual freedom is, sexual freedom biblically is the right to sleep with your wife and the right's wife to sleep with the husband because the husband's body belongs to the wife, 1 Corinthians 7, and the wife's body belongs to the husband (laughs) to nourish and cherish each other, not for abuse, but to nourish and cherish. That's sexual freedom, but they've they've rebranded it. Their sexual freedom is used to support sexual behavior that's harmful. The reason we're against it is not because we say, ooh, that's gross. No, 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 no. It's harmful. It'll destroy and wreck your life. We don't want that for you. Do you see? That's why we're against it, but sometimes they don't hear that. Sexual freedom is used to support behavior that's harmful, like the idea that living together without first making the covenant commitment of marriage to each other is not a big deal, or maybe even preferable to marriage because marriage is too much of an inconvenience from this type of sexual freedom. Margaret Sanger Another illustration. Margaret Sanger, if you're not familiar with her, she started a newspaper in 1914 called The Woman Rebel. 
It was based on moral and political rebellion. Her motto was, no gods, no masters. She believed in evolution, macroevolution. She believed in evolution and that certain people should have kids and other certain people should not have kids. She founded the American Birth Control League in 1921, which became Planned Parenthood in 1942. This has influenced abortion, the sexual revolution of the 1960s, same-sex relationships that are called marriages, but are by definition not, you know, God defines marriage, not the state. The state may have the privilege of recognizing it for tax purposes or things like that, but God defines the, the marriage, and transgender confusion. Sanger was influenced by Marxist ideas, which led to her work toward the redefinition of the American family structure. I mean, so this is, her, her fingerprints are, are all over. God's authority, and here's what she did. If you look at God's authority structure in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, okay? Everything's perfect, right? What did God say? It's good. And after he created man, uh, mankind, he said, it's very good. He, he added, very good. If you look at God's authority structure in the Garden of Eden, what was it? Well, you have God, uh, you have humans, man and woman, husband and wife in this case. You have angels, you have an- and then he placed us over animals, plants, and the rest of creation. And so you have this authority structure. You follow the authority structure to obey God, please him, but to not have this chaos that you obviously don't want. What was Satan's tactic to mess this up? So we're talking about Satan's tactic in the culture tonight, right? What was Satan's tactic to mess this up? God's authority structure. Flip it. Turn it on its head. When do, since when are we taking orders from angels? You have a fallen angel manifesting as an animal we have dominion over them, according to Genesis, not them over us. Um, thank you, PETA. We should treat animals ethically, but they take it a bit far. Um, we have authority over the animals, not them over us. You have a fallen angel appearing as an animal getting to who? In an attempt to get, who does he go to first? The wife. So we're not saying women are less than men, but there is an authority structure that God establishes. He goes to the wife first. You see what he's doing? He's trying to turn this authority structure on its head, upside down. Goes to the wife in an attempt to get to the man, in an attempt to obviously thwart God, his purposes. And it's what he did that got him thrown out of heaven in the first place. He tried to take God's authority structure and switch it, tinker with it, flip it around a little bit. Well, what makes you think that he's not gonna do that still today? That he's not doing this that this very moment in this culture. It's exactly what he does. It takes an incredibly naive church or Christian to believe that they can follow Marxism. And there's different labels for this. And they're slightly different, I realize this, but we're grouping them all under Marxism. Communism, socialism, which is a system that requires, doesn't allow, requires the removal of a belief in God from the culture. A Marxist culture is necessarily, by definition, an atheist, godless culture. It has to remove God to accomplish its end goal of creating its own false utopia or paradise. It has to. Why? Because remember, Satan's answers that he's going to give to these grievances, whether they're legit or not, sometimes he just makes up ones that aren't, but even if they are, are always going to be the opposite answer in competition with God's answer, God's solution. Okay, so if we get away from God's word, the Bible, it becomes much easier to understand how this can happen, how a Christian or a church can be deceived into thinking ideas that are toxic might be, uh, maybe there's some good thread, there's uh, some good points in that, so I'm going to follow that. I'm going to swallow all of it. Uh, The third thing under number two, uh, which is talking about normalizing bizarre, harmful behavior, is rewrite biblical gender roles. One of Satan's tactics is to rewrite biblical gender roles. There's an ACLU, let me give you an illustration of this. There's an ACLU tweet from November 19th, 2019 that says this, quote, there's no one way to be a man. Men who get their periods are men. Men who get pregnant and give birth are men. Trans and non-binary men belong. And then the, the phrase is, the hashtag is, International Men's Day. If God attached a specific role and calling to each of us, our gender or our sex, then an effective way to damage 
do damage to that role or calling is to confuse that person about their gender. If someone can do that, they can unravel almost everything. They can unravel in your life. They can unravel your role. They can unravel your calling. Think about it. They can unravel your purpose. (laughs) It's so clever. Who you can marry if you desire marriage. Even your very value as a person. The last one, your value as a person, is why, and really all that list though, is why the suicide rate is so high among those who struggle with sexual identity. It's not because their sexual confusion was not affirmed, that makes it even worse, and is one of the most unloving things to do to someone who is struggling that I can think of. It's because they lost hope. They become sexually confused and the only two options that they see in front of them that they saw in front of them before they made this terrible decision to harm themselves were, number one, you were made this way. That's the first option they see. In other words, there's no changing it. There's no way out from the despair or the emptiness it brings. And it does bring emptiness, by the way. Or, number two, the only other option they often see in front of them that leads them to make this terrible choice is, ooh, that's disgusting, get away from me. This sometimes, unfortunately, comes from the only people in the culture who have the truth, Christians, and stiff-arming the sexually confused will communicate to them that neither we nor our Savior Jesus Christ has the answer for their life or the power to heal their pain. We are the only ones in this culture, this has to sink in, we're the only ones in this culture who have the truth. It's with us. We're not perfect. We don't follow it perfectly. But we're the only ones in this culture who have the truth, who know the truth. And so it's your job to provide them with a third option. Hey, you think there's only these two options in front of you? No, no, no. There's a third option. Applying truth. This is wrong. I'm not going to affirm it. In love. I love you. I don't want you to wreck your life. That relationship will lead you down a a very dangerous path emotionally, especially if you're a guy physically, but even for girls, that will lead you down a very harmful emotional path. It'll wreck things in your life that I don't want for you. I don't want you to have to experience that pain. Applying truth in love. We'll cover what that looks like when we cover the last week, the church's response. The next thing under number two is redefine justice. You've probably heard this term. Social justice is a great illustration of that. The label on the box does not match the contents inside with this social justice issue. So the box says social justice on it. You look at the box and you think, oh, that's nice. I think I'll open that. And then when you do, it's full of garbage that is anything but social justice. Instead, it's an attempt to deconstruct the entire culture and legal system and reconstruct a new culture and its own image. And and ultimately, it's a power grab. That's what Satan does. That's what got him thrown out of heaven. And he hasn't stopped doing this. He's still power grab, power grab, power grab. In many situations, Satan only has the power that we give him. How did Satan pull off the biggest power grab in human history in the Garden of Eden? I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve had perfect perfection, perfect relationship and marriage between each other. What was that like? (laughs) I want to know. Perfect work relationship. The, The ground produced fruit easily wasn't hard. It came natural. Uh, Apparently, childbirth would have come easily and painless, I guess. Eve's work and her calling would have been just easy. You think about it, it's done, right? They had that. They walked in God's presence every evening, and they still walked away from that. You think, what? how clever does a lie have to be to get him to do that? Satan only has the power in many situations that we give him. How did he pull off the biggest power grab in human history, which is what he did in the Garden of Eden? He got us to submit to his plan when before we were submitting to God's plan. This is nothing new. Don't give Satan any more power or control or influence through your disobedience to God's design for you. That will make things way worse for the culture that you live in and also for you. That is why we want to be salt, which means we preserve God's character in this culture. It's not so that you can be right. It's so that you can please God and point the other person to the truth of God. That's the issue. That's the point, which is his love and his good plans for them. And we do this for other people, not just so that we can be right. We do it for them, for their sake. Any behavior that will appear to look normal 
if it, uh, any behavior will appear to look normal, when we're talking about normalizing bizarre behavior, if it's repeated in front of you often enough, long enough, if you are willing to negotiate on the truth. There's this quote from this guy named Alexander Pope. He's an English poet from 16, 1700s. And the quote's a little different, but it's old English, so I'm just modernizing it with the vocab a little bit. It says this, Sin has a face of such frightful mean appearance. Sin has a face of such frightful mean that at first it can hardly bear to be seen. But seen again and again its face, we first endure and then embrace. That's it. That's what he does. I mean, this English poet, Alexander Pope, realized this way back then. These tactics that we talked about under number two are then used to attempt to create an equality of outcome, not an equality of opportunity. God's all for that. But an equality of outcome, forcing the same outcome that will free the oppressed groups in this new utopia. This is their answer. This is, their, this is the enemy's tactic. So question how is this so-called new utopia created? Well, one, by restructuring the culture and its laws or structure. One of the ways is by electing or appointing government officials. More on that later. Okay, these next two we're going to run through much more quickly than the first two, and then we'll look at application and homework. Okay, number three. These will be much faster. We put most of the content in the first two. Number three, third tactic. And I realize a lot fit, but it kind of fit under that number two category, normalized harmful or destructive behavior, uh, bizarre or harmful behavior. Number three, tactic of the enemy, shame and vilify, make a villain out of. Shame and vilify any contrary views. Shame and vilify any contrary views that disagrees with their narrative. That's number three. Create groups that can be used for this purpose. We mentioned Black Lives Matter. Well, think about that phrase, Black Lives Matter. Matter. If you argue against the beliefs or the actions of this group, they are, what are you arguing against? They're forcing the rhetoric that you therefore believe that black lives don't matter. I mean, do you see how clever that is? Well, of course that's not what we believe. <laughs> but it almost seems rhetorically, that's the rhetorical force, like, oh, so they don't matter? <laughs> do you see the trap? Uh, Vody Bauckham does a great job when he's interviewed by people that want to trap him with questions like that. He goes, I'm not answering that question because that's a, that's a trap that you're wanting me to, so you can put me in this little category box. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to answer it. If you're against homosexuality as a lifestyle or a behavior because of the damage you know that it does to a person, you are a what? Homophobe. Comes from two Greek words, homo, same, uh, regarding same-sex relationship, phobe, phobia, where we get our word fear. You're afraid of them. You, you, it disgusts you or you have a fear of it. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's true. But that's not usually true of most Christians who are following the Bible. They're not afraid or that's not the issue. That's not the issue. There are many other examples we could cover, but I think you get the point. So number three, shame and vilify any contrary views. Number four, um, and this one's, I think, equally important and ties into some of the stuff we talked about last time. Number four, tactic of the enemy, elect or appoint, either one, depending on the case, elect or appoint government officials that will apply these ideas. Elect or appoint government officials that will apply these ideas. George Soros comes to mind. Um, question, how is this so-called new utopia created that they want to create? By electing or appointing government, government officials. The first one, electing, for example, you have president we can elect a president that wants to implement these things, it can do great damage. Um, let's go the executive branch, same branch, but on the state level. Governor, same thing. If, if I can put a governor in, if I can get one elected, he can do damage applying these ideas. Federal and state representatives and senators. <clears throat> District attorneys. Uh, hello, we see that all over the place with George Soros. DAs who refuse to enforce laws that are already on the books for serious crimes, not for petty stuff, but serious crimes, creating lawlessness and just bringing uh, that area into chaos. Local school board members, we've seen the result of some of that. Um, the second thing, not only electing, but appointing, by appointing go government officials. For example, executive branch regulatory agencies, just appointing that person there it can do great damage if they believe these theories. Um, federal judges, things like that. Uh, by the way, the House of Representatives, the, the Congress, does not usually use this authority lately, but they do have authority to strip federal judges. 
technically all the way down to all, all the Constitution requires is one Supreme Court justice and, and a space to work. You could have one guy at a table or one girl, whatever, at a table. <laughs> they have authority over them. Most people think federal judges is a lifetime appointment. No, it's not. It's good behavior. As long as they have good behavior, that's what the wording is. In the past, the Congress has pulled federal judges for drunkenness, cussing in public and from the bench. They considered that that's not good behavior. You're done. And they pulled them. But by appointing federal judges who believe this junk, we can get just a lot of bad stuff through. This is exactly why, like we looked at in week one in this series last time, we need to be salt and light in every sphere or area of life, including the political sphere. This is also why if the Bible speaks to a political issue, like we talked about last time, we should make that application in our biblical teaching because not because politics is our pet topic, shouldn't be, but because the Bible is our pet topic and the Bible speaks to politics. And it's one of the three spheres that God gave us at the very beginning. Family, church, and the political or civil, civic, whatever word you'd like to use, sphere. It's an important one. And we'll look more at that when we cover the church's response in this series. And I want you to think about this, about politics. Politics affects millions of lives in so many ways. Doesn't it? Millions. Why in the world would we leave that territory to the sole influence of the enemy? That is one of the most lazy, ignorant, disobedient, unbiblical ideas that I have ever heard in my entire life. And I have not heard, unfortunately, very many churches do anything to correct that idea in their teaching. We are not a political institution. We are a Jesus and his word institution. But his word speaks to so many political issues. And when it does clearly, not, okay, we're trying to make a case, but it's not clear. No, 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 clearly. Wherever it clearly does, then we go there if we're going to teach all of God's word. So the application section. I just want to show you this real quickly, okay? Application in your notes, and then I'll give you homework and we're done. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. So if you're still in Ephesians, hang a left. Go back to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We've got two quick passages. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Tactics of the enemy. Week 2, right? Here's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I used to love when I did student ministry years and years and years ago in Joshua, Texas, we'd always yell, say got it when you got it. And they'd always, got it, got it. You didn't hear, when you didn't hear it, got it for about five seconds. You go, okay, I'm going to read. Um, say got it. <laughs> for though, verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh because our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments. Does this sound familiar for what we're talking about tonight? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You live your current life in the flesh. That's what you're left with, right? But you, the war you fight and the weapons you use to fight that war, and we're going to talk about that in week four, are not limited to just the physical realm that you're able to see. It includes the spiritual realm also. That's what Paul is saying here, essentially. Now, go back to Ephesians, last passage, and then we'll give, uh, give you homework. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I just want you to see one thing here. I'm not going to walk you through this whole thing. Say, oh my goodness, it's already been over an hour and he's going to walk me through all the parts of armor. No, no, no. I just want to show you one thing. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, I want to show you the sword, the one offensive weapon. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the tactics, the methods. The, what are we talking about tonight? The zit of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's just what the last passage said. But against principalities, powers, and the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Because of that, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having wrapped your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, 
with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the, of the wicked one. It's talking about Satan. And, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, and now listen to this. Here's the offensive weapon. And the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the word of God. How am I going to use this word? Do I just throw it out there? No, no, no. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. In other words, His Spirit's leading me. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we'll unpack this passage more at the end of our series. But tonight, what I want you to see is we have plenty of defensive armor, but the only offensive weapon listed here is what? The Word of God. Correct? If you're willing to walk away, and and by the way, there's two Greek words for word. Logos, rhema. Logos can be written, but more often it tends to be the entire message. This is the Logos, the overall message, God's Word. There's a second word, rhema. Some people talk about it's spoken instead of written. That sometimes can be true, but the the better semantically what it means is rhema is a particular truth within the overall message. The Logos would be the Bible. The rhema would be a particular truth that you need in the Bible in that moment to use in prayer for yourself and against the enemy. Do you all see that? Particular truth. You know, suicidal ideation, depression. You're worthless. Is that true or a lie? That's a lie from the pit of hell. You're not worthless. You were made in the image of God. You go to those particular truths where where they are in God's word. You you write them down. You memorize them. You use them in your prayer life to correct that life, to combat the enemy. That's what it's saying here. So if you're willing to walk away from what this book says, then you're laying down the only weapon you have to fight this war that Satan is waging through our culture against you and against your church. To defeat the enemy's tactics, your resource is the truth of God. Period. Okay, homework. I want you to take this next week and spend some time praying and thinking about the different tactics of the enemy that he uses in your culture. And you're probably going to come up with some that I need to talk about. And then, I want you to do that. And then I want you to explore how the Bible, not some social justice movement, not some movement outside of the church, I want you to explore how the Bible says to deal with that. Because it does provide the answers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word and its richness. Um, Lord, I know we took a lot of time tonight to walk through this, but this is pivotal, important stuff. This is crucial to understand and and wrap our minds around what's going on and Satan's tactics in our culture. The culture is not our enemy. Satan is our enemy, and he wants to take the culture over. He, He is influencing the culture. That's what we're fighting. We're fighting a battle of influence. We don't hate the people that are duped by Satan's tactics. We love them. And because we love them, we don't stiff arm them. Uh, We don't refuse to talk to them. We do talk to them. We give them the truth in love. We put our arm around them and we say, hey, I love you. How can I help you? That's the attitude we're supposed to have. We're not, Lord, we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a soul for your kingdom, and so um, with your guidance and your power. So, Lord, we pray all this. Um, I pray you give us wisdom in this area to spot the enemy's tactics, some that we didn't even talk about tonight. We pray um, as we continue this series that you would um, not get us off on any pet topic, but to stay centered on what your word tells us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.